0: To today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February nineteenth, I'm your reader Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. They never gave up on her. Bill's test fate of a vital link, Iowa's area education agencies provide. This is by Grace King, out of Cedar Rapids. Five-year-old Gwendolyn Klaus was not expected to survive past her first birthday. When she was four months old, she was diagnosed with a rare genetic condition called Zellweger Spectrum Disorder, leaving her deaf and blind and with limited mobility. It was a devastating diagnosis, said her mother, Natalie Klaus. The doctors sent the family home, saying there was nothing they could do for her daughter. That period of time was such a blur. I don't even know how. But all of a sudden, I was contacted by the area education agency. They sent a speech therapist an occupational therapist and a physical therapist, and showed me how to communicate with my daughter, Klaus said. When experts from the AEA showed up at the Klaus's house, she said she didn't understand going through the effort of beginning to teach Gwendolyn how to sit upright and communicate, given her life expectancy. She wanted to love her baby as much as possible in her short time on Earth. Almost six years later, Klaus celebrates the progress Gwendolyn has made. She attributes her daughter's success to the many professionals from Grant Wood Area Education Agency who have given Gwendolyn so much attention to ensure she has the best quality of life possible. They've never treated her like she was a lost cause, a little girl who was going to die and wasn't worth the effort. Every single person who worked with her treated her like a person. They never gave up on her, Klaus said. But Klaus and many families and educators are worried about the impact two bills progressing through the Iowa legislature could have on the way area education agencies serve students with special needs. Both proposals, House Study Bill 713 and Senate Study Bill 3073, are based on the urgings of Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, who argues Iowa's AEAs have become too bloated and too ineffective in raising the academic performance of students with disabilities. Meanwhile, she says the state is spending more than other states do in serving them. A bill she introduced has been reinterpreted in each chamber, with the Senate version more closely aligning with her proposal for a major overhaul. While the House version envisions a more modest makeover, both would change the way AEAs are funded, set rules for what services they could provide, and create oversight within Reynolds' administration. At Gwendolyn's home and school, she relies on dozens of assisted devices for sitting and standing, tactile toys that help her learn, and other tools for communication. Grantwood AEA speech pathologist Jen Kaiser created a board for Gwendolyn to expand her ability to communicate. So far, she can communicate if she wants more or if she's all done by finding the object on the board that corresponds with what she wants to convey. Assisted technology like mobility aids, screen reading software, and speech recognition software, while used to provide special education services to children, is purchased through the media and technology budget and used by occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech therapists, and others serving students. Grantwood AEA spokeswoman Renee Nelson said the Senate version of the bill would reduce this funding to the AEAs by 60 percent. The House version, suggests that starting July 1, 2025, school districts, not the AEAs, would receive all of the media and technology funding and could choose to contract through any AEA or with another entity for these media and technology services. Under either scenario, an AEA would have to prioritize the collections it would continue to maintain because of the unpredictable nature of the funds, Nelson wrote in an email to the Gazette. It's hard to fully anticipate the impact of this reduction, but we know either bill could challenge our AEA to have the proper equipment available on a regular basis or to keep up with advancements and new technologies, Nelson said. For example, think of how voice-to-text technologies have advanced in the past several years. This is one example of a resource that would need to be updated regularly to ensure students have access to the tools they need to help them succeed. We're also concerned that children who use resources in these collections may have longer wait times for materials and resources. During the 2022-23 school year, there were 10,174 items circulated by Grant Wood AEA staff to be used to support students. Grantwood AEA has more than $600,000 worth of equipment used by staff with students and teachers by physical therapists, Occupational therapists, speech-language pathologists, social workers, school psychologists, early childhood staff, audiologists, autism consultants, content consultants, special education consultants, and more. Audrey White, an occupational therapist at Grantwood AEA, said it would be detrimental if AEAs were no longer providing these devices and the expertise on how to use them in the classroom and at home. The services go beyond learning by being about inclusion and enabling students to be active participants in classrooms. Switch-adapted toys allow kids with limited mobility the opportunity to interact with their peers. For example, a red toy car about the size of a shoebox can be operated differently depending on a child's ability. Toys that play music, light up, move around, and vibrate can be operated by touch or by chin switches or foot switches, for example. One device, called the PowerLink, can give students with limited mobility access to classroom jobs like sharpening pencils or turning on the lights. Devices can be plugged into the PowerLink, adapting them to be operated by touch or by chin or foot switches. There also are lower-tech tools like fabric light filters that magnetize to the ceiling to partially block fluorescent lights in classrooms to help students regulate brightness and focus on learning. There are scissors for students who are left-handed and scissors for students with fine motor skill deficits. There are leg aligners, rolling stamps that enable teachers to add lines to worksheets to help students in writing and math. School districts can try out this equipment for six weeks or more, exploring what's most useful to aid in a student's learning. When they find the right device, the school district can purchase it for the classroom. This saves schools money by taking the guesswork out of what devices will best assist each student in learning. Families also can try devices at home and purchase them if they find they're a good fit for their child. If devices they have at home break or need to be replaced because the child has outgrown them, the AEA is there to fill the gap in services, White said. Kelly Robertson, speech-language pathologist and lead, for assistive technology at Grantwood AEA, said it can be scary for families when their children receive a new diagnosis. The AEA experts are there to provide options to support every child's learning, she said. Robertson also provides coaching and professional development to teachers on how to use these devices, reaching beyond helping individual students and equipping educators with knowledge to serve students for years to come, she said. I worry a line will be drawn where I can help, Robertson said of the proposals. When Reston Sutton 6, a first grader in the Centerport Urbana Community School District, was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, Grantwood AEA was there to provide occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech pathology services. Cerebral palsy can affect a person's ability to move and maintain balance and posture. It is the most common motor disability in childhood. Grantwood AEA helps ensure Reston has supportive seating in class and for eating at the lunch table and for bathroom access. One of Reston's goals this year was to be able to carry his lunch tray by himself, something he accomplished with a smile. His mother, Rachel Sutton, said his diagnosis when he was almost two was life changing for the family. You have to, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to alter a lot of things about your home, your car, the way you get around. Grantwood was so helpful," she said. Grantwood AEA experts helped Sutton rearrange the furniture at her home so it was easier for Reston to get around. They had adaptive games on hand to help Reston develop fine motor skills and worksheets to help with his vision. Our children need these services," Sutton said. Gwendolyn's family first began receiving services when she was a baby through Early Access. I was Early Intervention System for infants and toddlers under three who are not developing as expected, or who have a medical condition that can delay development. This program is delivered by the AEAs, years before the child is of school age. Reynolds wrote in a January 19th open letter to Iowans that the program would continue despite her other suggested changes. There is no treatment for Zellweger Spectrum Disorder, but the Klaus family has learned how to manage Gwendolyn's symptoms. It's by the grace of God she's still here, said her mother. She has cochlear implants to help her hear. Seizures, which are a symptom of Zellweger syndrome, are treated with diet and medication. Liver disease, also a symptom, causes ulcer-like symptoms in her stomach and esophagus. She takes medication to manage the pain. Gwendolyn eats through a gastrostomy tube inserted through her belly to bring nutrition directly into her stomach. She sees a palliative care doctor for neuroirritability and an ear, nose, and throat specialist for a hole in her cleft palate. At home, Gwendolyn uses a suction machine so she doesn't aspirate on her own saliva, which can get into her lungs and cause pneumonia. On days when she's feeling better, she wakes up and sings to herself. She just smiles and laughs. It's absolutely adorable, Klaus said. Her two-year-old brother Gideon knows Gwendolyn likes to be rhythmic, "'rhythmically tapped on the chest. "'She finds it soothing,' Klaus said. "'She knows her family members by the feel of their hands. "'Each therapist from Grantwood AEA "'greets her differently with a tactile symbol, "'letting Gwendolyn feel a name tag or bracelets, for example, "'so she knows who it is that is there to see her that day. "'Gwendolyn said the word mom once. "'It was perhaps the coolest day,' Klaus said. "'We have a really strong faith,' she said. "'I know God already has her story written.' He's going to keep her here until she's done what he wants her to do on this earth, and then he's going to call her home. He knows when that day is, and until then, I'm going to love the heck out of her. I know she's here for a purpose, and I'm blessed to be along for the ride. Our next story, latest farm data, a wake-up call. Ag census shows less diverse farmers, more farms going out of business. Zemua Baptista had dreamed his whole life of becoming a farmer. In late 2019, while still in college, he was able to get a contract and a beginning farmer loan to build eight chicken houses to raise broiler chickens. Eventually, the first-generation farmer's birds are sold as rotisserie chickens at Costco stores. Now he keeps his eye on land opportunities, but he hasn't been able to purchase any more than the 80 acres he already farms. New data from the USDA's Census of Agriculture shows that farmers such as Baptista are becoming more and more rare. There are just not a lot of young people in the industry. It's just not that common, he said, noting that it was an uphill battle to get started. More than 9 out of 10 producers in the country describe themselves as white, a trend that is also reflected in the Midwestern states, where only 2% of producers are people of color. The latest data show Baptista is one of just 14 black farmers in Nebraska. There are an alarming there are other alarming trends in the upper Mississippi River basin, one of the most intensive agricultural areas in the country. More and more farms are going out of business and farmland is being consolidated, making it even more difficult to get into the industry. The Midwest, which encompasses 6 of the nation's top 10 most agriculture intensive states, witnessed more than a 4% decline in the number of farms since 2017, more than 30,000 farms. As Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack remarks on the findings which come out every five years, he emphasized his main findings, the number of American farms and farmers continues to decline, a fact he argued that carries broad implications beyond agriculture. I'm concerned about the state of agriculture and food production in this country, Bilsack said. This survey is a wake-up call. Missouri grappled with an 8% decrease, or 7,433 farms. Contrary to the prevailing trend, Iowa stood out. It was the only Midwestern state to not have a reduction in farms. It added about 800. Nationwide, fewer larger farms are now operating on less farmland than they were in 2017, the data show. Farmland nationwide decreased by 2 percent, about 880 million acres. At the same time, the average farm size increased by 5 percent. An Investigate Midwest analysis of census data found Wisconsin was hit particularly hard, suffering a nearly 4 percent decline in farmland, equivalent to 533,952 acres. It also lost roughly one in 10 farms and nearly one in three dairy farms, between 2017 and 2022. It's not a trend for the state, which once built an identity around dairy. I'm sorry, I'm going to start that again just in case. (laughs) I read that wrong. It's not a new trend for the state, which once built an identity around dairy. More recent state data show more than 500 additional dairies have shuttered since the census was taken, putting Wisconsin at 5,644 dairy farms as of February 1st, down about 9,000 in 2017. Notably, the number of milk cows in the state has declined less than 2% between 2017 and 2022, suggesting existing dairies are expanding. Some felt bullish about Wisconsin's agricultural future despite the losses, pointing to its spot as 10th in the country for market value of products, totaling $16.7 billion. The state's diversity of products, including vegetables, berries, and herbs, help smaller producers add to a diverse marketplace, said Jason Magniani, Executive Director of Governmental Relations for the Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation. Others contended that fewer farms on the landscape can have harmful ripple effects. Julie Kielen Bomer, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Farmers Union, said the loss of farms and farmers makes it harder for rural communities to survive. Policymakers must help small and medium-sized farms stay viable, she said. It's a choice we're making about what kind of farm systems and food systems we want, she said. It's not inevitable that we have to continue in this direction. Amanda Starbuck, Research Director for Food and Water Watch, an anti-corporate farming advocacy group, said she expected the 2022 Ag Census to show consolidation of livestock farming. But the change was more pronounced than she anticipated. I was surprised at how much more losses we've seen within the dairy industry at the national level, she said. In Iowa, there were 500 more hogs per farm on average in 2022 than in 2017, census data show. Raising more animals on fewer farms can have wide-ranging implications, such as disposing of larger amounts of manure in a smaller geographic area, Starbucks said. Livestock operations across the United States produced 940 billion pounds of manure in 2022, which was 52 billion pounds more than the 2017 Food and Water Watch reported. They produce more manure than they can sustainably can be sustainably recycled on nearby land, Starbucks said. That's why you have problems with water contamination. Farmers are typically older, white, and male, and that hasn't really changed, according to the census data. However, some questioned whether the numbers were entirely accurate. For instance, Iowa recorded a 10% increase in male producers. The number of non-white farmers in the state increased overall, but the data showed fewer black farmers. Schaefer Ridgway, a district conservationist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service in northeast Iowa, said he thinks some black farmers chose not to return census surveys. The 2022 census does not report any black farmers in Blackcock County, but Schaefer knows of several in the area. We have this big debate about who's a farmer, he said. Maybe they don't even consider themselves a farmer because they don't farm 500 acres. They don't farm 100 acres. They farm three acres of vegetables. To participate in the census, producers must have raised and sold at least $1,000 of agricultural products, including some animals, during 2022. The USDA said it would try to reach more farmers of color and urban farmers by diversifying marketing materials and conducting more educational sessions in cities. Unlike national trends, the age of the average farmer has seemed to stabilize in Iowa at about 58 years old, said Iowa State University agricultural economist Chad Hart. However, the state saw a nearly 20 percent surge in producers under 35, one of the largest jumps in the country. That tells us that this worry about farm transition is already occurring, Hart said. We are seeing some of this land transition from the older generation to the younger ones. However, the older generation still owns two-thirds of Iowa's land, said Wendong Zhang, an assistant professor of economics at Cornell University, who used to lead the Iowa Land Value Survey and the Iowa Farmland Ownership and Tenure Survey. Most farmland will pass down to family. That creates a barrier for others to enter the industry, especially as land values creep higher. There's a dichotomy regarding which metric you look at, Zhang said. There's a very significant presence of young and new and beginning producers across the nation. However, if you're looking at the land access and land holding that they have, I don't think that you see a whole lot of action there. And now I'm going to turn to the government notes. Cedar Rapids tries again for $25 million bridge grant. Public input sought on Mount Vernon streetscape, Cedar Rapids Greenway, and Iowa City Pool. Cedar Rapids is applying again for a $25 million federal RAISE grant, the maximum amount, to support its approximately $60 million project to rebuild the 8th Avenue Bridge as part of its permanent flood control system. The U.S. Department of Transportation funding would go toward the city's project to replace the existing bridge over the Cedar River with the Arc of Justice Bridge. The project is part of the more than $750 million flood protection system. The bridge project is partially funded through general obligation bonds and Iowa Flood Mitigation Program funds. In April 2021, the Iowa Department of Transportation awarded $1 million toward the bridge replacement through its City Bridge Program. The new bridge, a key segment of the City's permanent flood control system, will limit the need to evacuate areas behind the completed flood control system, improve trail access, and expand connectivity across the river. The new bridge would be a single-pier cable stayed bridge designed for a 100-year lifespan. It would have a single pier in the river instead of the current seven piers to improve the flow of the river and reduce upstream water levels. Cedar Rapids officials have tried for years to secure federal funds to support the project, That includes four previous applications through the annual Build and Raise grant application cycles from 2020 through 2023. All four previous submissions scored in the top category, highly recommend, but the program is extremely competitive. Only 10% to 15% of applications are awarded funds, according to council documents. The City also has pursued PROTECT and Bridge Investment Program, as alternate funding sources. Mount Vernon begins streetscape planning. Business owners in Uptown Mount Vernon are invited to a kickoff meeting from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. February 27th at City Hall, 213 First Street West, as City officials begin planning the Uptown Streetscape Project. The City is cre- creating a master plan to guide the design for First Street from 3rd Avenue Southwest to B Avenue Southeast, as well as the adjoining North Alley area. Community members can give their input on the project through an online survey at, this is all lowercase, cityofmtvernon-ia.gov slash uptown-streetscapes. More opportunities will be offered to public input in the future, too. The city anticipates hosting an open house in May for the community to review the plans before they are finalized in June. The historic Uptown area serves as Mount Vernon's downtown and central location for some of the city's most popular community events, including Chalk the Walk. To ensure the history and natural character of Uptown is preserved, the Streetscape Master Plan will identify ways to improve the area without losing its identity. The master plan will include parking, landscaping, furnishings, public art, and space for events. In an interview with the Gazette in November 2023, City Manager Chris Knospisch said the streetscape project could cost between $2 million and $6 million. Cedar Rapids seeks greenway feedback. The City of Cedar Rapids is asking for more feedback on its Greenway Parks Plan that will guide amenities along the west side of the Cedar River. Staff will be available from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday at Nubo City Market, 1100 3rd Street Southeast, for an open house showing plan concepts. Feedback will guide how the city prioritizes amenities and features for the area. The greenway encompasses the riverfront from Czech Village through Kingston Village to the Time Czech neighborhood. Solon offers access to mental health help. The Solon Community School District is partnering with Grantwood Area Education Agency so students, staff, and families can use Care Solace to find mental health care help as needed. Care Solace helps individuals find mental health care providers and substance use treatment centers. Their Care Companion Team is available 24-7, 365 days a year, to quickly connect people to verified mental health providers in the Johnson County community. Students, staff and families may access the free Care Solace services in two ways. You can call toll-free 888-515-0595 where help is available in more than 200 languages. A Care Companion will help calls through the research and in making appointments. They also will follow up to see if the referral is a good fit. Or, for an anonymous search, people can answer a few questions and get matched with care providers by going to, again, all lower caps, Caresolus.com slash Solon. Caresolus will connect people with mental health providers accepting all medical insurances including Medicaid, Medicare, and sliding scale options for those without insurance. All information entered on the CareSolus tool is confidential and securely stored. CareSolus is not an emergency response service or mental health services provider. In the event of a life-threatening emergency, individuals should call 911, excuse me, 911 or the National Suicide Hotline by dialing 988 or 1-800-273-8255. Iowa City Open survey on City Park Pool. Iowa City residents are invited to participate in the next phase of the City Park Pool redesign. A public survey is available at bit.ly slash cityparkpool. Until 5 p.m. March 8th, the survey is available in English, Spanish, French, Mandarin, and Arabic. Paper copies of the survey are available at City Hall the Mercer Park Aquatic Center, and the Robert A. Lee Recreation Center. The City also is sending postcard invitations to 6,000 households for a statistically valid random sample survey. Those who receive a postcard should use the provided QR code to access the survey. Results will be reported for both the random survey and the open survey. Four concept designs are available for consideration. All of them include additional shade, and have minimal impact on existing trees at City Park Pool. No additional parking will be added. Three of the designs feature zero-depth entries, enhanced play areas, and lap lanes. The fourth design is a nearly exact replacement of the current pool. Estimated costs range from $17.25 million to $19.45 million. A public drop-in open house will be held from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., February 29th at the Mercer Park Aquatic Center, 2701 Bradford Drive, Iowa City. Project architects will be available to discuss the four designs, answer questions, and record public input. After results are gathered, the Iowa City Council will choose a final design. I'm going to turn to the insight section, the opinion section, and the community letters. Our first letter today is from Patricia Lahr of Cedar Rapids. City must be prudent with incentives for data center. Before Cedar Rapids offers tax incentives to a company to build a data center, I would like more information about what they are bringing to Cedar Rapids, besides construction of the building, and what they are taking from Cedar Rapids. The Gazette article listed a $576 million investment, but it creates only 31 jobs. After the initial construction work, what will the facility require of the city? A 20-year tax exemption for 31 jobs seems like a lot. BAE invested $139 million in a new facility that created or saved 800 employees. I am guessing they are not requiring any more from the city than most manufacturing facilities. The data center, on the other hand, would re- could require tremendous amounts of water to cool the computers. Because the company that will occupy the center is unknown, it could be a Bitcoin processing center, which actually creates very little, but consumes the city's worth of water daily. According to an article in the Wall Street Journal, Bitcoin mining used more water than New York City last year. In a state experiencing drought, too much water usage doesn't sound like a good thing. I would hope that the city is very careful about giving tax incentives until they know what this investment that until they know that this investment is a positive for the city in every way, not just a construction project. I'm guessing that the 576 Dollar, million dollar investment was that million yes million dollar investment is largely for the computing power for the data center not the building. Our next letter from Dave Nolte of Coralville, tirades won't win religious liberty debate. As a retired Army chaplain, C-O-L, I very much want to comment on Justin Scott's February sixth letter to the editor, responding to an earlier one by Leland Graber. On the one hand, I strongly affirm his commitment to the authentic spirit of liberty embedded in our U.S. Constitution's First Amendment, which both prohibits the establishment of a state, in quotations, state religion, while simultaneously affirming every individual's right to freely exercise their own faith, even unfaith. One of the primary obligations of every military chaplain is to assist his or her commander in their command obligation. Under the Constitution, to protect, subject to temporary military necessity, every service member's religious free exercise, including protection from harassment and or unwelcome proselytization. On the other hand, I absolutely abhor both Mr. Graber's and Mr. Scott's confrontive hostile tone. Often the way we say things has a great impact on others' understanding and acceptance of our own point of view." I personally ache about those fully patriotic fellow Americans who, unfortunately, embrace Christian nationalism because they totally misunderstand the history and intent behind our Founders' very first Bill of Rights Amendment. And I'm appalled at how Mr. Graber's and Mr. Scott's tirades might, for some, possibly jeopardize an absolutely essential proper understanding and acceptance of this precious freedom. And our last letter is from Janelle Brouwer who is the superintendent of the Marion ISD. Levy is on the ballot in March for Marion Schools. On Tuesday, March 5th, residents of the Marion Independent School District will vote on renewing the district's existing physical plant and equipment levy, PEPL. This voter-approved levy generates funds for infrastructure and equipment repairs, purchases, and improvements. Per state law, the money can be used only for these purposes— Most Iowa schools have had a voted PEPL in place for over a quarter century. The district does not anticipate a property tax rate impact with a renewed PEPL. District leaders and the Board of Education remain committed to keeping the overall tax rate steady moving forward. This vital 10-year funding source generates approximately $1 million annually. The district has used PEPL funds for security upgrades, facility maintenance, student desks and tables, buses and vans for student transportation, technology for students and staff, and maintenance equipment. The existing PEPL would sunset on July 1, 2025 without a renewal. The district would need to consider using general fund or save money to support building upkeep, transportation, and technology, potentially delaying other planned projects. For anyone who would like more information regarding the PEPL, I would encourage them to visit our website this is all lowercase, at marion-isd.org slash article slash 1414936. On behalf of Marion ISD, thank you to our community for the engagement and support shown throughout this important process. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Ida Mae Harford, 88, of Eli, passed away on February 16th at Sunrise Hill Nursing Home in Trayer. Celebration of Life services will be at 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 21st at St. John Lutheran Church in Ely. Visitation will be one hour prior to services. Interment will take place at Oak Hill Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids is in charge of arrangements. Ida was born on June 28, 1935 in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Howard and Jean Westcott By. She was raised in Cedar Rapids, where she attended Kenwood Park Grade School, graduated from Franklin High School in 1953. Ida Mae was united in marriage to Lauren Leo Harford on November 7, 1953, in Cedar Rapids. They lived in Cedar Rapids for several years until moving to Hudson, Wisconsin for a year, then Dundee, Iowa, and later to Lamont, Iowa, in October 1966. Following... She moved to Ely, Iowa in August of 2022. Lauren passed away July, excuse me, January 11th, 2001. She belonged to the Grace United Methodist Church in Lamont where she served as secretary for UMW, Ruth Circle, Staff Parish Relations Committee, helped with the food pantry, mobile food pantry and other church fundraisers. She was the president of Lamont Federated Garden Club a member of the Eli Book Club and Quilting Club, and the Jolly Homemakers Club in Lamont. She volunteered at the Common Grounds Coffee House in Lamont, Lamont Legion Fish Fries. She enjoyed NASCAR and attending races with her son Doug in Newton and Kansas City and watching professional football. She loved horses and along with her daughter Charlie, attending the Midwest Horse Fair in Madison and Briar Fest in Lexington, Kentucky. She is survived by her children Raymond Harford, George Harford, Charlotte, Charlie, Zack, and Doug Harford, six grandchildren, Jennifer Whitty, Justin Harford, Julie Dietz, Maria Yuska, Missy Harford, and Pat Harford, eight great-grandchildren, Caitlin Noah, David, Katerina, Gavin, Lincoln, Lily, and Sawyer, a great-great-grandchild Easton, and her sister Carol Olver. She was preceded in death by her parents Howard and Jean By, her husband Lauren, a daughter-in-law, Marion Harford, a special aunt Peggy Hergert and a brother-in-law, Jim Olver. Cynthia Ann Musgrove Salas, 69, of Cedar Rapids, passed on from this world to join her sons Jack and Daniel on February 14th with her granddaughter Adriana by her side. Cindy was born February 17th, 1954, in two Robert Musgrove and Barbara Fernandez Musgrove in Cedar Rapids. Cindy grew up in Cedar Rapids and raised her three children there. Cindy will always be remembered for her beautiful, radiant smile that could light up a room. Her ability to fall so gracefully made it look as if they were choreographed by a stunt coordinator. If you know, you know. Throughout our lives, we will recall hearing her bossy words of wisdom, starting with, What you need to do is... And least we not forget those iconic red Sally Jesse Raphael-style glasses that framed her sparkling blue eyes. Cindy was preceded in death by her parents, Robert Musgrove and Barbara Wright... Sons Daniel Salas and Jack Gibson, brother John Musgrove, sisters April Johnson and Margie Ross, and dear friend Roxy Hall. She's survived by her daughter Brianna Patterson, grandchildren Taylor Hapti, Austin Jackson, Adriana Patterson, Autumn Gibson, Deontay and Aaron Jackson, great grandchildren Selena Wright, Amina and Amari Hapti, siblings Sandra Musgrove, Scott Musgrove, Diane. Diane Musgrove, all of Cedar Rapids, and Carolyn Wright Marietta of Maine, along with many cherished nieces, nephews, and cousins. Mary Catherine Mary Kay Thompson, 93, of Coralville, passed away on February 15th. She was born December 13th, 1930, in Baltimore, Maryland, to E. Hamilton and Christine Hurst. Her family lived in several locations throughout the eastern and midwestern parts of the country. Mary Kay graduated from Downers Grove High School in Downers Grove, Illinois. She attended Coe College in Cedar Rapids where she met the love of her life, Guerin Carl Thompson. They were married on November 23rd in Downers Grove. They made their home in Cedar Rapids and raised two children, Mark and Susan. In 1978, they moved to Iowa City. Mary Kay enjoyed being able to stay home with her children and attended their school activities. She loved to camp and fish with her family. She and Gurin loved canoe trips into the Boundary Waters. Later in life, Mary Kay was very active and engaged in the various activities of her grandchildren as well as her great-grandchildren. Mary Kay is survived by her husband, Gurin, her son, Mark Thompson, her daughter, Susan Belger, and five grandchildren, two step-grandchildren, six great-grandchildren, and three step-great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents and her brother, E. Hamilton Hurst. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Faye Edwards, 87, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, February 16th. A graveside service will take place at 9 a.m. on Saturday, February 24th at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids with Pastor Bonnie Copen officiating. A celebration of life will immediately follow until 11 a.m. at the Legacy Center at Linwood. Murdoch-Linwood. Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Faye was born August 29, 1936, in Bertram, the daughter of David and Bessie Comp Sparks. She graduated from Mount Vernon High School, class of 1954. Faye was united in marriage to Lawrence Owen Edwards on August 30, 1958, in Hannibal, Missouri. She worked for Iowa Power and Light and later transitioned into the role of a devoted stay-at-home mother. Fay returned to the workforce as a bookkeeper for the Cedar Rapids Community School District, where she dedicated 28 years before retiring. She enjoyed playing cards and traveling in her retirement years. Above all else, Faye cherished time spent with her family. Survivors include her children, Earl Van Edwards of Cedar Rapids, Kay Cox of Independence, Missouri, and David Edwards of Madison, Wisconsin. Five grandchildren, Eric Edwards, Scott Edwards, Sarah Nicholas, Tyler Cox, and Andrew Cox nine great-grandchildren, and brother, David Sparks of Ankeny. She was preceded in death by her parents, David and Bessie Sparks, her husband, Lawrence Edwards, sisters, Lavonne Lewig, Mary Wood, Dorothy Wood, and Ora Fair, and son-in-law, Tim Cox. David W. Oliphant, 74, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Thursday, February fifteenth, at Heritage Specialty Care in Cedar Rapids, David's greatest pride in life was his son's, and his joy came from his family, extended family, pets, and friends. On that note, his family will host a gathering of family and friends to celebrate and remember David's life from 4 to 7 p.m. March 3rd at Leonardo's, 2228 16th Avenue, Southwest, Cedar Rapids. Entombment will be held at the Linwood Cemetery Mausoleum in Cedar Rapids. Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, of Cedar Rapids, assisted the family. David was born November 7, 1949, in Cedar Rapids, the son of Wayne and Mildred Goner Oliphant. He graduated from Jefferson High School and the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. On July 21, 1979, David was united in marriage to Donna Munzenmeyer in Richland. David was a dedicated teacher at the Mount Vernon Community School District for 40 years. He retired in 2010. Survivors include his wife Donna Oliphant and sons Matthew Oliphant of Cedar Rapids and William Oliphant of Osceola, Wisconsin. David was preceded in death by his parents, nephew Mark Munzenmeyer, and brothers-in-law Jean and Don Munzenmeyer. Donald Lee Remore of Swisher was 79 when he passed away peacefully on February sixteenth from a prolonged illness. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 23rd at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Graveside services will be at 2 p.m. Saturday, February 24th, at Memory Gardens Cemetery in Iowa City, where full military rites will be conducted. Donald was born on January 6, 1945, in Morrison, Illinois, the son of Ralph W. and Velva M. Byerly Remore. Don served in the United States Army, serving in Vietnam as a mechanic in 1968 to 69. Graduated from military flight school in 1981 and retired from the National Guard as a Huey pilot in 1996. Don was united in marriage to Jean Ann Potratz in December—excuse me—on December 8, 1966, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Iowa City. He worked as a coordinator at General Mills for over 29 years, retiring in 2012. Don enjoyed golfing, hunting, woodworking, riding his Harley, playing video games, and most of all, spending time with his family, especially the grandkids. Don is survived by his son, Mike Remore, his grandchildren, Dante, Mildred, and Adrian, his siblings, Ralph Remore and Stanley Wilkinson, and Brian Potratz, his niece and nephew, Luke Potratz, and Julia Garcia, great nieces and nephews, Lennon, Georgia, and Oscar. He was preceded in death by his parents, his wife Jean, and a son Jeffrey Lee Remore. Kim Bulacek Sr., 68, of Solon, passed away on February 14th at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. As per Kim's wishes, private services will be held in Czech National Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Ross Chapel and the Avicenter in Solon are in charge of arrangements. Kim Sr. was born on August 5, 1955 in Cedar Rapids to James and Mary Bisick Bulacek Sr. Kim Sr. always had a skill for working with his hands, starting at his dad's auto clinic in Solon, working with automotive and small engine repairs. He worked for both the city of Solon for 20 plus years and the Solon Community School District. Kim always enjoyed gardening and taking care of his lawn, tinkering with his wheel horse tractors. He had a Z-28 Camaro that he enjoyed rebuilding, and a love for snowmobiling that he shared with his son, Kim Jr., for many years. Helping local farmers with projects and repairs also gave him great joy. Kim Sr. is survived by his son, Kim Bulacek Jr., two granddaughters, Elena and Allison, brother Jim Bulacek Jr., all of Solon, nephew Mark Bulacek, also from Solon, niece Jennifer Devereaux of Cedar Rapids. The family would like to express gratitude to the people who cared for and helped Kim Sr. later in life. He was preceded in death by his parents, Jim Sr. and Mary Bulacek. Mary Rita Hebel, 68, died peacefully on Friday, February 16th at UIHC. She was from Hills. Massive Christian Burial will be celebrated at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, February 21st, at St. Joseph's Church in Hills. Visitation will be from 12.30 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the church. Burial will follow at St. Joseph's Cemetery in Iowa City. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to friends of the Animal Shelter Foundation or Camp Courageous. Mary Rita was born September 4, 1955, in Iowa City, the daughter of Elmer and Mary Catherine Casper, Hebel. Mary Rita attended the Nelson Center and the University of Iowa Pine School. Mary was the youngest of ten children and was a lifelong resident of Johnson County. She was a loving daughter, sister, aunt, cousin, and friend. Mary loved music, dancing, the Iowa State Fair, and horses. Saturday nights were reserved for Lawrence Welk. He was. A, she was happy to see people and was always quick with a giggle. Mary Rita is survived by her siblings, Anne Marie Draker of Hills, Doris Schwartzen-Druber of Iowa City, Lawrence Larry Hebel of Kelowna, George Hebel of Solon, and Michael Mike Hebel of Amana, sister-in-law Sharon Sherry Hebel of West Branch, 43 nieces and nephews and extended family. Mary Rita was preceded in death by her parents and brothers William, Bernard, Maynard, and Elmer Ron, and six nieces and nephews. Mitchell Edward Hansen was born... October 5, 1977, in Marengo, the son of Arnold and Elaine Martin Hansen. Mitch lost his ongoing battle with alcohol addiction peacefully, passing away on Friday, February sixteenth, at the University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City at the age of 46 years. He graduated from Williamsburg High School in 1996 and worked for the Union Pacific Railroad for the last 19 years. He was a member of St. Mary's Catholic Church. He enjoyed all types of music, telling a good story or joke, golfing, playing pool, the Hawkeyes, and sharing laughs and beers with friends. Although he had his struggles, his heart was full of love and kindness. Never a harsh word was said or a grudge held. He was very proud of his family, and he bragged about them often. He always had a smile to greet people and a kind word to share. He is survived by his mother Elaine Hanson Mowry of Williamsburg, daughter Kennedy Rathjen of Maringo, siblings Diana Nichols of Williamsburg, Mark Hanson of Denville, New Jersey, Angie Westcott of Williamsburg and Marty Hansen of Williamsburg, significant other Stephanie Mum of Williamsburg, nine nieces and nephews, seventeen great nieces and nephews, and step siblings Chris Mowry, Catherine Perez, Angela Doherty, and Mary Roberts. He was preceded in death by his father, Arnie Hansen, Jr., and grandparents, Arnie Sr. and Veda Hansen, and George and Clara Martin. Funeral Mass will be 1.30 p.m. Tuesday, February 20th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Williamsburg. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at St. Mary Hall in Williamsburg with a rosary service at 3.30 p.m. Burial will be at St. Joseph's Catholic Cemetery in Parnell. A memorial fund has been established for Iowa County 4-H. John Leonard Len Gourley of Cedar Rapids was born on May 19, 1932 to John Edwin and Adelia Berkey Gourley on a farm outside of Villisca. Following graduation from Shenandoah High School with the class of 1953, John was drafted into the Army and served during the Korean conflict. Upon his return, he joined the Army National Guard where he served for 25 years. He was united in marriage to Patricia Zimmer on May 18, 1957, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Shenandoah. To this union three sons and a daughter were born. John worked as a buyer for multiple companies in the Cedar Rapids area. He was active in all local military organizations and the Elks Lodge. He served as drill instructor with the American Legion Color Guard, Hanford Post number no. 5 in Cedar Rapids for 20 years. He is survived by his wife Pat Gorley, four children, Michael Gorley, Ken Gorley, Margaret Smith, and Joseph Gorley. Ten grandchildren, Stephanie Gorley, Alex Gorley, Jessica Ortges, Andrea La- Robinson, Kara Christensen, Curtis Gorley, Danielle Cunningham, Samantha Nelson, Jeremy Gorley, and Nathan Gorley. Twelve great-grandchildren, his sister Anita Ostoff and his aunt Edith Swanson. Don was preceded in death by his parents and his brother Richard. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section, and I will start with what you can catch today in sports. Um, the Class 3A, 4A substate boys' basketball tournament is happening today, along with high school bowling state tournament at Cadillac XBC in Waterloo. And men's basketball, Iowa State, is playing at Houston tonight at 8 p.m. Um, On TV, you can catch in the NHL the Maple Leafs at the Blues at noon on ESPN, Red Wings at Kraken at 2.30 p.m. on ESPN, and the Blackhawks at Hurricanes at 6 p.m. on NBCS. That's in Chicago. In men's basketball today, Colgate is at Lafayette at 5 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network, Virginia at Virginia Tech at 6 p.m. on ESPN, And Kansas State at Texas at 6 p.m. on ESPNU. William & Mary at College of Charleston at 7 p.m. on CBS Sports Network. And Iowa State at Houston at 8 p.m. on ESPN. North Carolina Central is at Norfolk State at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. In women's basketball, Creighton is at Connecticut at 11 a.m. on KFXA. Indiana is at Illinois at 1 p.m. on KFXA. And Notre Dame is at Duke at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. In women's gymnastics, Utah at UCLA at 4 p.m. on ESPNU. There's horse racing today, the America's Day at the races at 3.30 p.m. on FS1. And if you like pro lacrosse, their Premier League Championship has the Cannons versus the Water Dogs at 10.30 a.m. Up, oh, we've missed that. And pro soccer, Everton versus Crystal Palace at 2 p.m. today on USA. On the radio, you can catch Iowa State of Houston on KGYM at 7 p.m. Um, and online basketball for a sub-state quarterfinals. Cedar Rapids Jefferson at Prairie at 6.45 p.m. on crmlivesports.com. Okay, we'll see if we can get in a couple quick articles here. In Big Ten Men's Wrestling, Woods, Iowa, right the ship against Wisconsin. Senior records pin in Hawkeye's victory that snapped rare 2 dual skid. Out of Iowa City, Tom Brands was happy to see his Iowa wrestling team's 2 dual skid come to an end Sunday. We have to focus on what's ahead, the Hawkeye coach said after his fourth-ranked team dominated Wisconsin 34-7 at Carver Hawkeye Arena before an announced crowd of fourteen thousand eight hundred and twenty seven. Postseason looms. But that postseason remains somewhat of a mystery. Iowa's lineup, it appears, is far from set. Brands used freshman Joey Cruz at one hundred and twenty five pounds, Brody Teske returned at one hundred and thirty three, and gave Arnold Russell just his eighth match at one hundred and eighty four. Who will be in the lineup at College Park, Maryland, when the Hawkeyes lead when well, excuse me, when the Hawkeyes head to the Big Ten Championship in less than a month. Is this team ready for the most important part of the season? You'll know if we're ready when I know if we're ready, Brand said. Here's the thing. We've got a dual meet left, February 25th at Number 2 Oklahoma State. We've got a lot of wrestling to go, and that starts right now. We're going to Stillwater, Oklahoma. That's an undefeated team. I think they've re-identified themselves in the way that they wanted to. The march to March may remain unclear, but on Sunday, these Hawkeyes... Whose record is eleven and two and six and two in the conference, were dominant against were dominant again after back to back lopsided losses to Michigan and Penn State. Iowa won eight of the ten bouts, getting a rare pin from second ranked Real Woods at one hundred forty one pounds, and a nineteen four technical fall from Teskey and Patrick Kennedy at one hundred seventy four, Jared Franic at one hundred fifty seven. Zach Glazer at 197, and heavyweight Bradley Hill scored major decisions. The Hawkeyes totaled 30 takedowns and 120 match points. Winning just brings good spirits, Woods said. This team's full of men who know how to fight through adversity. Adversity catapults people like us. It doesn't bring us down. And I'm going to see if I can do one more article here about our high school wrestling. Oh, I'm not sure I can pronounce this name, but Nat Gaboran caps perfect run. Linmar ace finishes 37-0, grabs first state title at 144 pounds by K.J. Pilcher out of Des Moines. Undefeated and undisputed, unquestionably a perfect feat to conclude Kane Nat Gaboran's high school career. Linmar's senior four-time state medalist capped an unbeaten senior season, winning the 144-pound title at the Class 3A state wrestling tournament. Saturday night at Wells Fargo Arena. He is the tenth Lions wrestler to win a state championship. It's been good, Nat Gaboran said. I set out every goal I wanted to accomplish. I'm pretty happy with myself. I left it all out there. Nat Gaboran posted a 37 0 season, beating West Des Moines Valley's Jakari Clark 9 2 in the finals. He battled through the frustration of an opponent attempting to keep it close, tallying takedowns in each period and adding two penalty points on three stalling calls. It was the only time he didn't earn bonus points against a wrestler from Iowa. I think I could have been a little more dominant, Nat Gamoran said. He had a good game plan for the match. His dominance this season and his career is undeniable. He recorded 33 pins this year with 29 as a junior and 38 as a sophomore. Nat Gaborn has 109 falls and about 130 career victories. He had two pins and a major decision to reach the finals. Pinning is hard, and he makes it easy sometimes, Linmar coach Doug Stryker said. It's just the fact that he has such a high standard for himself, and hopefully we do as a program, too. It has to be that way, but it's also a double-edged sword as far as putting pressure on yourself. Sometimes it shows. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for The Blog.